Well, thanks, Sandy, for the kind words of uh, welcome. It's nice to be with you again today. If you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 14? I uh, started a series on the life of Peter a good while ago. And uh, when I pop in here, um, I've kind of committed myself to taking on another installment in, in Peter's life. So... Today we're going to look at Matthew 14, verse 22, to pretty much close to the end of the chapter. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. I think we'll end there at the end of verse 33. Just a prayer uh, before we look at this passage. Lord, help us, we humbly pray, as we look at this text of Scripture. We pray that you'll make it live to us. It's a story that's probably familiar to most of us, but we ask that you will make it live to us and uh, that you will be our teacher. We pray that we'll hear more than just the drone of a preacher's voice, but that we'll hear you, the living God, minister and speak to us in the way that only you can. We pray this in our Saviour's name. Amen. So Jerry Bridges uh, wrote a book uh, entitled Trusting God even when it hurts. I don't know if you've read that book. It's a great book to read. In fact, anything that Jerry Bridges writes is mostly worth reading. And in that book, he makes um, the point that sometimes it is harder to trust God than it is to obey Him. Sometimes it's harder to trust God than it is to obey Him. I think that's one of the most profound statements that I have ever read. Because when the storms of life are lashing against the side of the boat, when it's well nigh impossible to trace the hand of God or sense the presence of God, 
it can be hard to trust him. It can be hard to believe that he loves us. It can be hard to believe that he has a perfect plan for our lives. It can be hard to really believe that he will supply just what we need when we need it to survive in those circumstances. But trust him we must if we are Christians because we know that although God's ways are not our ways, God's ways are always best. God is too loving to be cruel. He would never inflict unnecessary pain upon his children and he is too wise to ever make a mistake. God brings us the way that he brings us for a reason. Uh, I think that we may never know fully the reasons why God takes us the way that he takes us on the journey of life. But maybe God has got things to teach us in those circumstances that we couldn't learn anywhere else. And that is the best place for us to learn those lessons. The truth is, we may never know this side of eternity why God takes us the way that he does. But God has a purpose. As we break in again into the life of Peter, uh, a number of things have taken place in his life. So he met Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of Jonas. Uh, You're a young fluttering dove, but I'm going to make you into a rock of a man, Peter. I'm going to make you into Peter. And uh, we know that after that initial meeting, there was a bit of coming and going from his fishing boats and fishing nets. And he would go out and listen to Jesus, and then he would return to his boats. And then one day, we discovered that Jesus um, needed a platform on which he could speak to the crowds that were gathered around the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he used Peter's boat, and in the aftermath of that... um, he told Peter to let down his nets and Peter let down his nets and he caught this huge haul of fish two boatfuls full to the gunnels of fish and in the aftermath of that Jesus said to Peter I want you to leave your fishing boat and your fishing nets and I want you to come and follow me and I want you to start fishing for men and for women and for souls and I want you to take the skills that you've learned as a fisherman and put them to use in another area of fishing that of soul winning and of course Peter from that moment moment onwards um, his life was linked with Jesus and you find that throughout the remainder of the Gospels This story that we are looking at here um, this morning is uh, an incident that took place sometime later in the the life and and ministry of Jesus. Several things have already taken place that we're kind of jumping over. There's already been another incident on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus was asleep in the boat and His disciples were with him and they thought they were going to drown and they wakened him frantically and of course he stood and spoke to the winds and the waves and they became still. 
The day that we are looking at here in the life of Peter and in the life of Jesus comes immediately on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000, which is another great story that we could stop and look at. But it comes immediately on the heels of that. And uh, it's the story of, of course, the disciples being caught in a storm and Jesus walking out to meet them. Now, there are three things that I want to try and lift out of this text of Scripture. Um, I want you, first of all, just to think with me about the stormy seas. Secondly, I want you to think about the Savior. So the seas, the Savior, and the sailor. Those are the three uh, areas, I hope. Uh, That's pretty straightforward. The stormy seas, the sovereign Savior, and the sinking sailor. So first of all, the stormy seas. A couple of things about that. First of all, just think with me, if you would, about the problem. So the Sea of Galilee lies about 600 feet below sea level, which is incredible. But 600 feet below sea level. And that means... It's surrounded by hills, um, particularly in the north and on the western side. Some of you have been to the Sea of Galilee. But, but what happens is the, the cold wind comes funneling down the Jordan Valley and it collides with the warm air that sits just above the surface of the lake or the Sea of Galilee and it creates this pressure that, that forces, that, that has a force downwards and it turns the surface of the lake into an absolute whirlpool and it can do that unexpectedly so that even the most seasoned fishermen fishing on the Sea of Galilee can be caught unawares and uh, that's a well known fact. One night uh, the disciples found themselves in the middle of one of these storms. Their little boat was being tossed around like a cork bobbing in the waves. They had set out about nine, ten o'clock at night, and John six nineteen tells us that um, they'd only travelled a short distance by the fourth watch of the night, which is between three o'clock and six o'clock in the morning. By the fourth watch of the night, they'd only travelled a very short distance. So it was a fierce storm. And it was a frightening experience uh, even for these seasoned fishermen. The waves were lashing against the side of the boat. The boat was probably filling up with water. They were wrestling on the oars trying to keep this boat upright and going in the right direction. And it was a very long and it was a very difficult, arduous evening that they spent on that little open vessel in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, being tossed around by a raging storm. Yet as I thought about that, I mean, life started out pretty pleasant that evening. They spent the day serving Jesus, feeding the 5,000, carrying baskets of bread to people. That evening they set out, they got into a boat, it was a beautiful evening I'm sure, and they set out across the lake, and everything was swell until the storm came. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, that is a fairly accurate picture of life. Life can be running so smoothly, then suddenly out of nowhere the storms can descend. You go to visit the doctor and the doctor looks over the table at you and tells you that you've got cancer. You lose your job and your employer tells you that you're on a month's notice. Depression descends on you like a cloud that you cannot shake off. No matter what you do, you can't shake it off. You find yourself sitting at the bed of a dying loved one. 
And then you have to try to adjust to life without them. Your teenagers who were wonderful children become an absolute nightmare and go in every way but the right way. You waken up one morning with a headache and that headache never goes away for the next 30 years. None of those stories that I have just uh, used have I plucked out of the air. I could put a face behind every single one of those stories in the churches that I served as pastor. And a thousand more. A thousand more. And it seems to me that sometimes life runs so smoothly and then out of nowhere the storm descends. And it can be difficult to understand why. Sometimes it's not the big thing, sometimes it's a mountain of little things. Everything seems to go wrong. The car breaks down when you can least afford it. The children are ill on the day of the interview. The monthly income is just below the cost of our outgoings. It's a ton of little things. It's not that there's a huge thing. It's just that there's a mountain of little things. And it's like working your way through a storm. But my question is this. Isn't that life in a fallen, broken, broken world? As Christians, can we really expect to be exempt from the problems that other people face? Can we really? Realistically? The Christian life is not like a drive in a limousine where we are cushioned with comforts on the inside and completely detached from what is happening on the outside. I think it's unrealistic to think that we will never experience what other people experience. God, I think, does not wrap us up in cotton wool when we become Christians. I think what God does instead is He puts us on display in our real world. That's what I think God does with His people. He puts them on display in a real world to show the difference that His grace can make in life's difficult circumstances. So on a hospital ward, He places some of His people in a school classroom. In university halls, on a factory floor, on a building site, wherever it is God takes us, He places us on display in a real world to show the difference that His grace can make. I remember speaking to a lady from the States. Um, I lived in Canada for a long time, so I had lots of conversations with people from the States. But this particular lady... Her son, she was a Sunday school teacher. Her husband was an elder in the church. And her son traveled north to a, to a fairground. He and his girlfriend. And they went on one of these bungee platforms that you rise up into the sky. And then, and then it plummets to the ground. It's supposed to slow down before it hits the ground. And on this particular occasion it didn't slow down and it hit the ground. And the boy and his girlfriend were killed. And uh, in the aftermath of that, people were saying to her, you know, why would God allow something like that to happen to such nice people like you? I mean, your husband's an elder, you're a Sunday school teacher. Why would that happen to you, nice people like you? And she turned around to them and she says, well, why wouldn't it happen to me? And why would I expect to be exempt from the struggles that other people face? As God wants to put his people on display in a real world to show people that his grace can make a difference in difficult circumstances. Well, here's the second thing, not just the problem, but a little bit about the providence. Why are the disciples caught up in this storm? That's a fair question. 
Why are the disciples caught up in this storm? Is it because they are disobedient? Are we caught up in the storms of life because we are disobedient? Well, sometimes I think we would have to acknowledge that sometimes God catches up with us to correct us, to rebuke us, to straighten us out, to put us on the right way. I mean, I think you would have to argue that in the case of Jonah, wouldn't you? This runaway prophet, God told him to go to the people of Nineveh. He didn't like the people of Nineveh, so he went in the opposite direction. But you can't run away from God, let's be realistic. God is everywhere all of the time. You cannot get away from God. Uh, And this foolish... Uh, Hebrew prophet should have known that and he did a runner but God caught up with him in the middle of a raging storm but I don't think you can say that of everyone I don't think you could say that of Job for instance you know what God said about Job man who lost his his family in one foul swoop was it seven sons and three daughters one foul swoop lost his farm income, his every implement, his health, he's sitting scratching himself with broken pieces of poverty. You know what God said to to Job's wife? I think it's in Job chapter 2, if it's not 2, it's certainly 3. She said, he said to her, I have no one else like your husband. There is no one else like him on the face of the earth. Upright, righteous, hates evil, shuns evil. I have no one else, there's no one else like him on the, on the planet, your husband. So I don't think you could even dare to suggest that God is punishing Job in his circumstances. Why are these disciples here? I don't think you could argue that they have been disobedient. The truth is they have been very, very obedient. They have just served 5,000 people. Can you imagine what that was like? Carrying baskets of, of, of bread to thousands upon thousands of people. They'd worked their socks off for the master. And in the aftermath of that event, the crowds wanted to make Jesus king. And so to, to somehow make sure that the, that the disciples didn't get caught up with the misplaced euphoria of the crowds. He packed them into a little boat and sent them off to the other side of the lake and as they went out into the lake at the request of Jesus really important to know that they did not decide oh let's just jump into a boat and go over to the they went at the request of Jesus he told them to get into the boat he sent them out onto the lake they went in obedience to the request of Jesus and as they did so they were caught in this horrendous storm now why did Jesus do that? I don't think anybody can be dogmatic in answering that question. But I think what I can say is that it was part of their spiritual growth, the experience of being caught in that storm. I think it's fair to say, I don't know that this is fully the exhaustive reason why they were caught in the storm, but I I think it's fair to say that that night they learned things about Jesus that they couldn't learn anywhere else. They learned that night that the one that they served could ride the waves and still the storms. Where else could you learn that? That night they caught a glimpse of... The divine glory of their master. That night they learned that no matter where they were and what the circumstances were, they would never be out of his reach. 
Even if they were on the middle of a lake, in the middle of a raging storm, they would not be out of his reach. He could still come to be with them. They learned that night lessons, I think, that they could not learn anywhere else. I I have to be honest and say to you, I look back over my life and I have to confess to you that I have learned more in days of sorrow and sadness than I ever did in days of happiness and joy. I experienced the Lord's presence in days of sorrow and sadness that I never experienced in days of laughter and joy. The poet, I think, put it so well when they said, I walked a while with pleasure, and she chatted all the way, but she left me none the wiser for all that she had to say. I walked a while with sorrow, and not a word said she, but all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Why are they here? Because they have disobeyed? No. They are here because they have obeyed. And because somehow in the mystery of God's will and God's providence, He has decided to take them this way. That's why they are there. Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband, of course, was speared to death on the banks of the Kareri River in Ecuador, trying to reach a group of people that remained unreached, felt called by God to reach them. In the aftermath of her husband's death, she penned these words, The will of God can be bigger than we bargain for. (laughs) The will of God can be bigger than we bargain for. So they are there because in the mystery of Christ's will, he has determined that they should be there and that they should learn things that they can only learn there. Here's the second thing. That's the first thing. The stormy seas. The second thing, the Savior. I'll be as quick as I can. I know that I'm, I'm lagging and I need to pick up the pace a bit. A couple of things that I wanted to say about the Savior. First of all, his prayerfulness. I mean, if you put yourself in the circumstances of the disciples, right, in that boat, in the middle of a raging storm, um, you would be asking the question, I certainly would be asking the question, so, so where's Jesus when you need him? Wouldn't you be asking that question? I would be asking that question. So where is Jesus when, when we need him most? I mean, here we are. Our boat is filling up with water. The, the, the waves are lashing against the side of the boat. Where's this Jesus when we need him? That's a fair question. Well, the Bible doesn't really tell us a great deal. But what it does tell us is in verse 23 is that he was on a mountainside by himself praying. That's where Jesus was. He was praying. And and the Bible doesn't tell us what he was praying for. But I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that somehow he was praying for his disciples amongst other things. Don't you think that's a a, a fair conclusion? That as he sat on that mountainside overlooking the lake, watching the disciples in the middle of this raging storm, isn't it reasonable to assume that he was at least bearing them up before the Father? One of the commentators put it this way, that the Father and the Son were keeping watch throughout the first, on the mountainside, throughout the first, second, third watches of the night. They were perfectly acquainted with everything that was going on inside the boat and outside the boat. That's where Jesus was. And, and so, as you wrestle, as you wrestle with, with where is Jesus when, when you need him most... 
in the middle of your raging storm. So she's sitting, uh, as she's sitting, and, and the doctor says to you, I'm sorry, but you've got cancer. <coughs> or your employer says, I'm sorry, but you're, we're going to have to bring your job to an end because we can't afford to keep you. Or, or, or your children have become an absolute nightmare. Where is Jesus when that stuff is happening? Well, you know what the writer to the Hebrews tells us? It tells us he ever lives to make intercession for us. And wherever Jesus is and whatever Jesus is doing, the truth is he is praying for you. Isn't it interesting that there is no evidence in this story that they ever had any desire to pray for themselves? There's no record of them at any point in this story praying for themselves. But Jesus is praying for them. And uh, see when it says in the book of Hebrews that he ever lives to make intercession for you. That's not a passive word. Some people think that, oh, Jesus is merely in heaven and, that, and because he's there, he, he's a constant remembrance of it. That, that doesn't adequately explain the word intercession. The word intercession is an active word. So somehow, mysteriously, he bears us up before his Father as we find ourselves in the storms of life. First thing is his prayerfulness. I don't know what you're going through, but I do know that Jesus is praying for you. And for me, out of the 7 billion people that walk this planet, 7 billion people, Jesus knows everything about me and bears me up before his Father. Isn't that incredible? The second thing is his presence. I I don't know why Jesus didn't come to them immediately. I don't know why he waited until the fourth watch of the night. Um, I guess he left it until they had come to an end of their own resources. Maybe that's why he left it until the fourth watch of the night. But he left it until between three o'clock and six o'clock in the morning. And that's when he came walking on the water to them. They thought it was a ghost. They had never seen anything like this before. They cried out with fear. I think I would have cried out with fear if something had come walking on the water to the boat that I was in. But it was no ghost and Jesus said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Doesn't that verse remind you of, of so many promises in the Old Testament that where God says, do not be afraid for I will be with you. It's almost like the same words where Jesus says, don't be afraid, it is I. I've come to be with you in your darkest hour. Come to be with you when you need me most. I've come to be with you when you felt that there was no other hope. I have come to be with you. You thought it wasn't possible for me to come to be with you in the middle of this raging storm. But you will know from this point onwards that you will never be in circumstances where I cannot come to your aid. And that's significant when you think about the fact that all of the disciples would die a martyr's death with the exception of John who was banished to the island of Patmos and was roasted in oil in Ephesus, so he didn't have really a great life either. All of them would die a martyr's death, but all of them would know as a consequence of this night that there would never be circumstances where Jesus couldn't be with them. You know, they came to a a, a 4th century preacher called Chrysostom and they said, stop preaching about Jesus or we'll confiscate your treasure. You know what he said? You cannot confiscate my treasure because my treasure is in heaven. 
where moth and rust do not decay and thieves do not break in and steal. And they said to, to him, well, we'll banish you from your friends. He said, you cannot banish me from my friends. Because I have a friend who has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. And that's what the disciples learned that night. That no matter where they are, Jesus would be with them. You know, when I, when I was at Bible college many years ago, one of the students I studied with hated a song that we used to sing. And this is the song, Standing Somewhere in the Shadows, You'll Find Jesus. He hated that song because he thought it was theologically inaccurate. Oh, Jesus is never in the shadows. But I can tell you, after 20 years of pastoral ministry, when you stand beside a young couple and they're burying their two-year-old daughter, and you hug them at the graveside and feel them shake to the very core of their being, sometimes it feels like Jesus is in the shadows. But he is always there. Always there. And you say, well, how do you know he's always there? I know he's always there because of the nail prints in his hand. That's how committed he is to his people. Committed enough to give his life on a cross. And the third thing I would have mentioned if I had time, I'm just going to skip over this, is his power. Not many people can come walking on the winds and waves and speak to the storm and, and, and it obeys him. But this is no ordinary person. This is a second member of the Trinity. This is God manifest in the flesh. This is Jesus Christ who is Lord. And he comes walking on the waves to them because he can do the unthinkable. You know, in Mark's account of this story, is really interesting detail. It tells us that it seemed as if he was going to pass them by. You read Mark sometime. It seemed as if they were go- he was going to pass them by. Doesn't that remind you of a couple of Old Testament stories? Exodus 33. Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock. And the glory of God passes him by. Or 1 Kings 19. And, and uh, Elijah is at the mouth of the cave. And the glory of God passes by. I have a feeling that night that they caught a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus. And it was almost going to pass them by as it had in the Old Testament. Because that night they caught a glimpse of who Jesus really was. Someone has said, I must never presume because I am a man. But I will never despair because I have a God. We must never despair because we have a great, great Saviour. So I, I want to encourage you. I don't know what it is that's troubling you this morning, whether it's your wayward children and whether it's brothers and sisters that are, that are disinterested in the God. Listen, we have a God that can do the unthinkable. Here's the last thing. With this I'm finished. The sailor. A couple of things about the sailor. First of all, I, w- I just want you to notice that he was called by Jesus. He was called by Jesus. I used to think, you know, Peter, he should have stayed in the boat. But when he saw Jesus coming to them, he, before, the rest of the, before the rest of their brains were even in gear, Peter's legs were out over the side of the boat and he says to Jesus, If that's you, would you tell me to come, to, would you bid me to come to you? And Jesus said, come. And I used to think, you know, he should have stayed in the boat. What in the world was he thinking? Getting out of the boat and walking on the waves. 
I mean, it was ludicrous. It was crazy. He should have stayed in the boat where it was nice and safe. And here's the truth. I've changed my mind about that because he didn't do anything that Jesus didn't give him permission to do. Jesus could have simply said to him, no, no, stay in the boat, Peter. I'm not asking you to, 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 to venture in faith on the waves. Stay in the boat where it's nice and safe. And he could have stayed in the boat where it was nice and safe. But he would never have had the opportunity of venturing in faith to do the unthinkable with Jesus. And sometimes God calls us to do the unthinkable, doesn't he? To venture by faith. To, to leave the boat where it's nice and safe. I, I know, I know a, a, a pastor who's on a, a steady salary. But God is calling him to do the work of a missionary in some far-flung corner of the earth. The safe thing to do is to stay in the boat with his steady salary and his manse. But if he stays in the boat and doesn't get out of the boat and venture by faith with Jesus... You'll never know what it is to do the unthinkable for God and with God. I don't know what it is that Jesus is calling you to do, but I, I long for people who will not think about what's safe. He'll do what is unsafe in a sense, not physically unsafe, but who will, who will do the impossible, who will, who will take on the impossible for God and with God, knowing that God can do the unthinkable. People like George Verwer, who will trust God for the finances to put two ships in the ocean, full of gospel literature, sailing into port after port, of country after country, and offloading its contents on the dockside and giving it away to people. Don't you look for people with faith like that? Who in the world will say, I'm going to trust God with enough money to buy two ships and enough money to keep them going in the ocean year after year. It's safe to stay in an office and uh, do some ministry from that office. It's, it's dangerous to step out and trust God for that kind of stuff. Here's the last thing I, I want you to notice about this, and there's a ton of other things we could have said, but not only was he called by Jesus, but he was enabled by Jesus. I guess the big question is... It's one thing for Jesus to stay afloat on the stor- storms of life, isn't it? But, but here's the question. Can, can, can a disciple be expected to stay afloat on the storms of life? Can I be expected to stay, to survive and stay afloat in, in, in the middle of life's storms? That, that's the question. And, and the answer is, yes, I can as long as I continue to look to Jesus. When he started to look at the winds and the waves and his circumstances and he began to think, look, look what have I done? Look at, look at these waves. When he starts to look at the circumstances, when that becomes his entire focus, he starts to sink. But as long as he looks at Jesus and trusts in Jesus to keep him afloat, he can stay afloat in the storms. I'm not saying the storms will go away. I, I'm not so naive as to think that the storms will always be taken away. Listen, I, I was a pastor for 20 years. I have stood at too many gravesides and read the Bible at too many hospital bedsides to come to a place where I believe that God will always take the storm away. Sometimes God doesn't take the storm away, but he keeps us afloat in the storm. 
And I do think that God, and I do believe with all my heart that God can sustain His people in the storm. They continue to look to Him. It's when we take our eyes off Him and start to look at our circumstances, start to look at ourselves, and start to think, well, people shouldn't be able to walk on waves, so what am I doing here? When you start to think about you and your circumstances, and that becomes your entire world, that's when you'll start to sink. It's when you keep your eyes on Jesus that, that you will find that He'll make a way through. So the three things were very simple, weren't they? There was uh, the storms. Unexpectedly, the storms of life can erupt. And then there was the Savior. He's praying for them. And he comes to be with them at their darkest hour. And then there was the sailor. He got out of that boat because Jesus asked him to come. He said, if it's you. And Jesus could have said, stay there. He didn't want to just stay where it's safe. He wanted to do the unthinkable. He wanted to venture by faith on the storms of life. And Jesus kept him afloat. As long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus who could sustain him and give him strength, he could stay afloat. When he started to look at his circumstances, that's when he started to sink. May God help us to keep our eyes on Jesus.